Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. Hebrews, chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. Hebrews, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. And as we look at these verses, we're going to be considering the sum of the gospel. Give attention to God's holy word. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you have appointed preaching as the means by which you make eternal life known to us. And so we pray now that during this time of preaching, you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, purge our hearts that we might set our minds on things above and not on things of the earth. We pray, O Lord, that you would elevate our souls even up to the top of Mount Zion, that we might behold your glory, and in beholding your glory, be fed with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this for his sake. Amen. Well, as I'm sure most of you are aware, if not all of you, the Queen of England has passed away after what I think is the longest reign of any English monarch in history. And, of course, as the Queen passed away, her son, Charles has now been brought to the throne of England. He's Charles III. Now, if you know anything about church history, you know that it's often not good for the Reformed when a Charles wears the crown of England. That's not what I want to talk about this morning, though. I want to talk about Charles's wife, Camilla. You may not know much about her. She came from uh, a commoner's background. She's not of any type of noble family at all. She married Charles after Diana passed, and now that Charles has been elevated to the throne, Camilla is elevated to be the royal consort. She is of an equal status with her husband. She came from a common background. She has no noble lineage. She has no skills or virtues or wealth or anything that would give her a right to that privilege. The only reason she has that privilege is because she's united to her husband. This is not only true in the royal house, it's true in our houses, isn't it? When two become one flesh, everything that the husband owns becomes, by right, the possession of the wife. Everything that he has now belongs to her because of their union together. Well, brothers and sisters, this is not only true in the royal house, in our own marriages, it's also true in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we're going to look at this passage, this passage summarizes for us the heartbeat of the gospel, the the centerpiece and the whole point of the religion of Christ. And the sum of the gospel that we're going to see in this passage is that those who are united to Christ by faith, 
enjoy the benefits of justification and sanctification. Those that are united to Christ by faith enjoy the benefits of justification and sanctification. And we're going to look at this passage under these three ideas. Union, justification, and sanctification. Now I'll tell you before we get into this passage, you may have noticed, it's a much shorter passage than I normally choose because the, the depth and the, uh, the concentration of what the author is teaching us is going to take some time to unpack. Now we're going to look at this under these three ideas according to the phrases that we find in our passage. Union is contained in the words, we have a high priest. Justification is contained in the words, who is seated at the right hand. And sanctification is contained in the words, a minister of the true tabernacle. So union, it's right there in the phrase, we have. Justification, who is seated. Sanctification, a minister of the true tabernacle. And we're going to pay attention to these things in these ways. Well, first we need a definition. Union with Christ is the mystical bond that the regenerate enjoy by faith. It makes us one with Christ. It is the ground of imputation. You understand one of the great benefits of salvation is that my sins are no longer mine. They have been imputed to Christ, and His righteousness is imputed to me. The ground of that, the reason that happens, is because of union with Christ. It's the ground of imputation. It's the source of all spiritual life. Christ said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. It's the source of spiritual life, and it's the assurance of our salvation. Union is the mystical bond between the regenerate and Christ that makes us one with him. It is, to not overstate it, the heart of the gospel. The heartbeat of the gospel is union with Christ. Now this union, as we've been looking throughout the book of Hebrews, you hopefully are well aware, this is written to Hebrews who knew their Old Testament backwards and forwards. And the way that the author is teaching the people in this letter is he's using all of these Old Testament ideas, all of this Old Testament symbolism to highlight and teach the gospel of Christ. And so what we're going to do is take a look at how union was symbolized in the Old Testament, specifically in the priesthood of Aaron. Notice that the author says, we have such a high priest. And the, the conflict of this letter is that, well, we have Christ, our high priest, but these Jews, they want to go back to the high priest of Aaron. They want to go back to the Levitical priesthood. And so this author has to contrast these things. So get your fingers ready. We're going to look through some Old Testament passages. First, keep in mind that union was symbolized in Aaron. Aaron's priesthood was a symbolic representation of this union. Turn with me to Exodus 28. 
Exodus 28, verse 9. Exodus 28, verse 9 through 12, the, the garments of Aaron are being described. And look at what Moses says. Then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and six of their names on the other stone in order of their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold. You shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as a memorial stone for the sons of Israel. Notice carefully. So Aaron shall bear the names, uh, shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. Skip down to verse 21 in the same chapter. Verse 21, the, the Lord has described the 12 jewels on Aaron's breastplate. The two we just read about went on his shoulders. The other 12 go on his breastplate. Then in verse 21, the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel according to their names. Like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name, they shall be according to the 12 tribes. Now skip to verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. Now notice that Aaron's garments symbolized the union with him. When Aaron went to minister into the holy place, he bore all the names of Israel with him. So that when Aaron went into the holy place, Israel went into the holy place. When Aaron came out of the holy place, Israel came out of the holy place. The holy garments of Aaron symbolized his union with Israel. And specifically in his priestly ministry. As Aaron went in, Israel went in. The human nature of Christ, however, assumed in the incarnation, enacts his union with the elect. Let me, let me illustrate the point here this way. I know we're getting into heavy waters. When Aaron would put on the holy garments, he was, as it were, symbolically putting on the entire nation of Israel through the names on the stones. When the Son of God became man, he took on our nature. And in reality, through the miracle of the incarnation, united himself with us by taking on our nature. This is the point of Hebrews chapter 2. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, the author tells us, verses 11 through 18 is the broad context. I won't read all of that for you. But here's the highlights. He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. Verse 14, inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Verse uh, 16, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham by taking on the nature of Abraham. And so the author can say, we have a high priest. 
We are united to Christ by faith. By His taking on our nature, He unites Himself with us. And as the author says in chapter 8, this is the main point. The main point of the Gospel is that Christ has come and accomplished. He says it in verse 1, chapter 8. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. This is not only the main point of this letter, it's also the main point of the Bible as a whole. The message of the Bible is Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. In Luke 22, verses 27, uh, 25 through 27, Christ is walking with the disciples. I'm sorry, Luke 24, 25 through 27. Christ is walking with the disciples, and he, he uh, rebukes them because they don't understand. And he says, Ought not the Christ to have suffered and entered into his glory? And then he expounds in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Paul the Apostle writes, Romans 1, 1 through 4, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, notice, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, etc., 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 Acts chapter 3, verses 18 through 25, Peter is preaching to the Jews, and he's telling them, this Christ whom I proclaim to you, all of the prophets predicted from the beginning of the world, all of the prophets wrote about these things. And then again in Acts chapter 10, verse 43. And so, Christ and his finished work is the main point. Union with Him is the message of the Gospel. That's the whole purpose of the Bible and why it's given to us. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand the importance of this. There are many who twist the Bible to their own purposes. There are many who think when we have to preach the whole counsel of God, that means going into deep, profound doctrines. But what this passage is telling us is that the whole counsel of God, the sum and substance of His message to humanity, is that you have a high priest. Brothers and sisters, do you have this high priest? Are you trusting in Him by faith? Have you laid hold of Him? Is your name written not on His clothing, but as it says in the book of Isaiah, engraven in the palms of His very hands? Israel is complaining and saying, Lord, you've forgotten us. And the Lord says, how can I forget you? How can a mother forget its child? Your names are written on the palms of my hands. I will never forget you. You have a high priest. You are united to Christ by faith. And even as Paul says, your life is hidden with him in heaven forever. This is the whole counsel of God to the church. So do you have guilt? there's a sacrifice. Do you have sorrow? There's sympathy. Do you have worry? There's a rock. Do you have joy? He's your crown. You have a high priest. Amen and amen. But not only do we have a high priest, we enjoy his benefits as well. He not only marries us, 
but he puts a crown on our head and clothes us with, with royal garments. And that's what we turn to now. The primary benefit, or we can say that the two chief benefits we enjoy with Christ are justification and sanctification. Now this is represented in our text that we have this high priest and so we're united with him and everything that he has is ours. Well, let's learn more about this high priest. It says in the next phrase, still in verse 1, this high priest is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And this is a representation of justification. First, what does justification mean? Justification means to be declared in the sight of God as the supreme judge, righteous for the merits of Christ through union with Him. Justification means to be declared in the sight of God as the supreme judge, to be righteous because of the merits of Christ through union with Him. Your justification doesn't mean you got it right. Your justification means Christ got it right, and by union with Him, His getting it right is your getting it right. His righteousness is given to you in the sight of the judge. You know, one of the ways to illustrate this, one of my favorite illustrations, is uh, to think about a cat. You ever had a cat? Well, you know that cats, if they want to get somewhere, if it's a tight hole or a tight, tight doorway, getting between chairs, all the cat has to do, if he can get his head through the hole, the rest of his body's going to go with him. That's all he's got to do is get the head through and the rest of it follows. Christ is your head and he has gotten through, as it were. You, as his body, will follow him all the way to glory. And that's what's going on here by union and the benefits. And so justification is uh, given to us by this union, Romans 5.19 is a good passage to look at to illustrate this. We won't spend time on this. But I want you to notice in this passage especially, union, I'm sorry, justification is symbolized, it's represented by the movement of the priest. Justification is symbolized by the movement and location of the priest. Consider, in the book of Leviticus, Aaron could enter the holy place only once a year. Chapter 16, if you want to look there and, and maybe follow along as I go through this, there's no need to because I'm going to summarize it for you. But Aaron could enter the holy place, but he had to leave after a time on the Day of Atonement. There's several features about the Day of Atonement for us to recognize. First, it was a meeting with God face to face. The Lord says in Leviticus 16.2, I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So when Aaron went into the holy place, he was meeting with God face to face as it were. Intercessory prayer was offered during this day of atonement. Leviticus 16.12, Aaron would come in with a, uh, a bundle of burning incense and, and bring the incense into the holy place. Incense represents prayer in the scriptures. And so intercessory prayer was offered. Leviticus 16, 17. This was temporary, however. Aaron could go in, offer the incense, but then he had to leave. 
And then finally, in Leviticus 23, 26, the Day of Atonement was a day of affliction. The Lord told Israel, every soul that is not afflicted for its sins on the Day of Atonement shall be cut off. And so under the priesthood of Aaron, justification was not complete. The priest could go in, but he had to come out. The priest could offer prayers, but he had to leave again. And when the priest went in to offer these prayers, it was a day of affliction. It was a day of sorrow. It was a day of reminder that your guilt is still upon you. But our high priest is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. There is no place in the Old Testament where Aaron ever sat down in the Holy of Holies. Aaron had to go in and come out. And then his son had to go in and come out. And then his son's son had to go in and come out. But in Christ, our high priest, the high priest has gone in and sat down. He never leaves the presence of God. He has been fully accepted and you in him have been fully accepted, symbolized by the movement of the high priest. He's seated at the right hand in the heavens, uh, at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's at the right hand, which means it is a place of honor in the Holy of Holies. And he's interceding for you right now. Chapter 7, we just looked at this a couple weeks ago, says that therefore, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Why? Because he lives forevermore to make intercession for them. Aaron could go in and pray, but then he had to leave. Christ went in, sat down, and now he's praying for all the names that are written on his hands forevermore in the Holy of Holies. The last thing I'll say about the Day of Atonement under the Levitical system, under the priesthood of Aaron, when Aaron went into the Holy of Holies, it was a day of affliction. But in Christ, because of his finished work, it's a day of joy and rejoicing. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 24 says this, The stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone and the head of the corner. We know this refers to Christ as applied to Christ throughout the entire New Testament. The very next verse says, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Brothers and sisters, the day of Christ is a day of joy for you. Because of his finished work and your perfect justification, your sins are remembered no more. The Lord doesn't send this high priest out to make more atonement. He's made one atonement. Sin has been paid for. And now it's a day of joy and rejoicing. Several parallel passages highlight this. I won't take you through all of them, but perhaps you've noticed in all of the Gospels, except John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Christ died, what happened? The veil of the temple was rent in two. And so when Christ died, access to God's presence was accomplished. Perfect justification had been achieved. Sin had been finally atoned for. 
This is what Paul says in Romans 5, 1 and 2. If we've been justified through the blood of Christ, we have peace with God and access according to the grace in which we stand. We have access to the Father's presence. This is symbolized for us in that our high priest is seated at the right hand. If Christ, your high priest, is seated at God's right hand, you are seated at God's right hand. Fully justified. Ephesians 2, verse 6, tells us that God raised us up and has caused us to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Through union with Him, what's true of Christ is true of you. Now, some of you may be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Some of you may be struggling in the mud, blood, hair, and filth of this world. Understand, brothers and sisters, if you have the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are united to Him, that's not how the Lord sees you. That's not your true place. That's not who you are. You are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. You are exalted far above all the principalities and powers of this world. You have been elevated just as the wife of King Charles was elevated because of union with him to the right hand of the majesty on high. I've mentioned this before, but Paul says it. Turn to Colossians. This is food for our souls, brothers and sisters. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. The same idea is going on here. Union with Christ and your true identity. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is not here in the midst of your struggles. Your life is there in the midst of glory through union with Christ. Look to Him because He saved you from all of your sins and He is continuing to save you through sanctification. That's where we turn next in Hebrews chapter 8. Not only does He forgive us of all of our sins and declare us perfectly righteous, God, through Christ, cleanses us from the power of sin. He cleanses us from the filthiness of sin. And this is what we call sanctification. Again, a definition. Sanctification means that they that are united to Christ are set apart in holiness and progressively grow in obedience and holiness throughout all their lives. Sanctification means that those who are united to Christ are set apart in holiness, meaning set apart from the world and for God. Set apart in holiness, and they progressively grow in obedience and holiness all through their lives. In our passage, the doctrine of sanctification is in verse 2. It says that he is a minister of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. 
Again, we look to Aaron to understand how Christ is superior. In the ministry of Aaron, if you go back and, and read Leviticus and Exodus, Exodus 29, 37 is a good example of this. I would say it's probably, probably 80 to 85% of Aaron's ministry was purifying and sanctifying the tabernacle, the table, the altars, the furniture. He spent most of his time wiping blood all over the temple. Sanctifying and purifying the temple. You ever thought about why that is? Seems kind of odd. This is the Lord's temple. He ordained this temple to be built. He dwells in this temple. But most of Aaron's work is sanctifying all this furniture. Well, Exodus 20, verse 25 tells us why. The Lord says, when you build an altar to me and you put your tool upon it, you have defiled it. The reason the temple had to be sanctified all the time is because it was built by men. Human tools were used to build the tabernacle, to build the temple, to build the altars, to make the priestly garments. All of it had to be sanctified because man touched it and that corrupted it. Again, this indicates under the Aaronic priesthood the imperfection of sanctification. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that David and Moses and all the rest didn't have justification and sanctification just like we do through union with Christ. But they did not enjoy the full blessing of it. They didn't have the full power that we have after the finished work. And so Aaron is spending all of his time purifying the sanctuary. Christ, however, doesn't minister in a human tabernacle. He doesn't minister in a temple that was built by men. He ministers, as our author tells us, in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. But what does this mean? This means that where Christ is ministering is without defect. There is no corruption in the temple that Christ ministers in. There is no sinful defilement in heaven above. At the right hand of the majesty on high in the true holy of holies, there is no sanctification needed for the furniture or for the building, if we can speak in the metaphor of Scripture. There's no sanctification needed. And therefore, Christ's ministry in the presence of the Father actually accomplishes sanctification. It actually produces holiness in the people. Consider some parallel passages. Leviticus 21, 23. I'm just citing that one for you, but there's a hundred passages to this effect. Leviticus 21, 23 says that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I, the Lord, am the one who makes you holy and progressively cleanses you in holiness. It's something that I do. And so in the ministry of Christ, just like the ministry of Aaron, they were appointed to minister this holiness to the people. To bring the sacrifices and the offerings so that the people would be holy in God's sight. 
Let me put it to you this way. The source of your holiness, the source of your growth in obedience, is not you. We often, we, we often get these things twisted up. You see, we, we talk about the gospel, we talk about the benefits of Christ, and we tend to stop at justification. Yes, Christ forgives me of all of my sins for His blood's sake. Now I've got to start being holy. I've got to start obeying. I've got to start figuring this thing out. But you see, your justification and your sanctification come from Christ. I, the Lord, am the one who sanctifies you. And I sanctify you through the means that I have appointed. I sanctify you through the minister that I have appointed. Then it was Aaron. Now it is Christ. And Christ accomplishes that work in your life. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8 is a, a parallel passage to this idea. I want you to notice... The whole emphasis of Romans 8 is that your growth in holiness, your preservation in the faith of Christ, no matter what happens to you, is because of Christ's ministry on your behalf. Specifically, Christ praying on your behalf. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness We do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts, you know who that is? Christ is the one who searches the hearts. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For whom whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is sanctification. God's eternal decree is your sanctification in the image of Christ. And now we know all things work together according to the plan of the Father, because the effectual prayers of the Son go up evermore in his presence, and are applied to us by the power of the Spirit, so that no matter what happens in your life, God will make you holy. And in being made holy, He will make you fit for glory. Keep reading. That He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, these He also glorified. Brothers and sisters, your sanctification comes from the work of your minister, the minister of the true tabernacle that the Lord built and not man, your high priest in heaven forever. The Lord puts you through trials. The Lord puts all of us through trials. Sometimes he allows his saints to be tried by the great tempter himself, Satan. Job was tried by Satan. 
Peter was also tried by Satan. Turn to Luke 22. I want you to see how Christ ministered to Peter when he was tempted by Satan. Luke 22, 31 through 32. said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. I do not think I've ever been sifted by Satan himself. I don't think any of us have ever been sifted by the great Satan himself. But Peter was. And in that sifting, everything was taken away from Peter. You know that's what sifting is, right? You put the grain and the husks and everything into the sieve, and you shake it all about so that everything that is not wheat falls to the ground. Peter was sifted And everything was taken from him except his faith. And the reason he kept his faith is because Christ prayed for him. Brothers and sisters, some of you may be sifted right now. Some of you may be going through a trial and it might seem that Satan himself is sifting you. I won't speak to that because I cannot see the spiritual realm. But I do know that when we are sifted in God's providence, it can feel like... Everything is falling down around us. Take heart. Your faith is a gift of God. And Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, is praying for your faith that it fail not. And so look to Christ because He ministers for you. And so then, as I said, here is the sum of the whole counsel of God. You have a high priest. You are justified. You have been and will be progressively sanctified. And all of these benefits come to us through union with Him. That's the whole sum of the counsel of God. And so what do we do with this? We do the same thing you did at the beginning of your union. You do the same thing that you did when you first heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of union with Christ and that all of our life is hidden in Him that the author will say in chapter 12... Verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? By looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is your high priest. And everything that you need comes from the ministry of your high priest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the high priest that we have. We confess that we only know the beginning of your ways. We have only seen sparks of your glory. And we would see more of your glory even according to your promise that those whom you foreknew you have called and those whom you've called you've justified and those whom you've justified you will glorify together with your son. We ask you, O Lord, to show us your glory now that our faith in the work of our high priest might be strengthened and we might find all that we need from him. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.